Hello everybody, welcome to Case Acquaint. You have found episode 3 of our I-95 series. This episode, we'll be talking about lots of open cases, all in or around Cumberland County, North Carolina, and mostly the Fayetteville area. We're headed northeast, staying with our I-95 theme for this particular series. Fayetteville is a military city. It's home to Fort Bragg, so many of the families are somewhat in transit. They probably won't be there forever. You may not know your neighbor as well as you might in Lumberton. And that's what sets Cumberland County apart from other counties. So you have the same challenges associated with being situated on a busy interstate, along with the issues that communities which have military bases usually have to deal with. So this is another information-heavy episode. If you hear anything that interests you and you want to do some more research, we'll go ahead and post some links and more information on our website, caseacquaint.com. And you can always discuss over on our Facebook page. First, just a little business. I'm going to actually divide this up into business now and business at the end of the episode. For now, I want to thank those of you who have contacted us to request an episode on a subject of interest. We are currently going through all the requests and we will be responding. We had no idea we would get any requests so soon after starting this podcast, but rest assured we'll follow up with you and hopefully we can put together some good stories that'll help close cases because that's our goal. And if you have ideas for episodes, feel free to message us or email us. You can find all that information on our website, caseacquaint.com. Our first case of this episode, the unexplained death of Pamela Walder. On January 26, 2005, in a secluded area of Fort Bragg, a backpack and a jacket were found. It was immediately discovered that the backpack belonged to missing teenager Pamela Walder. Police wondered how did these belongings end up there in Harnett County, 16 miles from Pamela's home, and where was the young owner whose father reported her as a runaway? Pamela, an intelligent 16-year-old high school student, had disappeared three days earlier. According to Pamela's dad, Bo Garcia, Pamela had been upset with him because he had broken a promise to her that he would come home from work in time to help her style her hair in order to attend a military ball with her boyfriend. When Bo arrived late, Pamela stormed out of the house, threatening to move out. By all accounts, Pamela seemed to enjoy the ball, but when she returned home that night, she and her dad had another confrontation. Bo says Pamela attended a debate competition the next day, and when he went to bed on January 22nd, he felt things had started to calm down. Pamela's bedroom door was closed and locked. Her radio could be heard from the other side of the door. He decided not to disturb her. The next morning, the door was still locked. Radio was still on. That night, January 23rd, Bo Garcia says he grew concerned and gained access to Pamela's room. That, he said, is when he saw books emptied out of Pamela's backpack and when he realized Pamela was gone. He filed a missing persons report and the only clue they found was the discovery of the backpack and jacket a couple days later. Pamela Walder had only been living in Fayetteville for 18 months. She had been raised by her maternal grandparents, who legally adopted her at the age of two. 
But when Pamela was 12, her dad, Bo, started to develop a relationship with her, and finally when she was 14, she told her grandparents that she wanted to move from Washington State to Fayetteville to live with her dad. They allowed her to go, but told her she could come back any time. Pamela, always a good student, continued to thrive academically, but all was not well. Although she had many friends and a boyfriend, Pamela's relationship with her dad was rocky, and it's been said that she had previously attempted suicide and lost an unhealthy amount of weight. Was Pamela depressed? Bo told reporters that Pamela was barely speaking to him. Police were immediately suspicious of Bo because Pamela called her grandparents on a regular basis to say she wanted to move back to Washington. Also, an ex-girlfriend of Bo had filed a report with CPS one month prior to her disappearance, accusing Bo of mistreating Pamela. As family arrived from Washington, police increased efforts to find the missing teen. They searched areas near Pamela's house and on Fort Bragg to no avail. They questioned her dad, but eventually he stopped cooperating, refusing to take a polygraph. Police said they don't believe Pamela ran away and Pamela's grandparents traveled to Fayetteville to help with the investigation, offering a $10,000 reward for any information leading to her whereabouts. As leads were followed and police turned up nothing, the case grew cold. Then, in 2007, soldiers on a training mission found a human mandible on Fort Bragg. Through dental records, it was confirmed to be that of Pamela Walder. Police continue to investigate Pamela's case as a homicide, but at this point, they have no new leads. And today, Pamela Walder would be about 29 years old. The Unexplained Murder of Michelle Bullard The same month Pamela disappeared, Another young woman was kidnapped from a home at gunpoint, and like Pamela, her belongings were found in one secluded area, while her remains were eventually found ten months later in a different secluded area of Cumberland County, which was also 25 miles from where she had been taken. 23-year-old Michelle Bullard had sustained blunt force trauma to her skull. On January 2, 2005, a masked man broke into a mobile home that Michelle was visiting in Lee County. Lee County is very close to Cumberland County. There were four occupants of the home that night, and all were restrained at gunpoint, robbed, and taken to different rooms by the intruder. When the other victims were able to free themselves, they found that the intruder and Michelle were gone. At first, police thought Michelle might have been part of the robbery plot, and they searched her home. Then they questioned her friends, who had been victims of the robbery. Within one day of the kidnapping, police tracked down a man named David Earl Wilson, initiating a traffic stop. Nobody can say for sure what was going on in David Earl Wilson's head when he shot and killed himself before police could question him, but it became a convenient turn of events for police as they said later, the facts clearly show that David Earl Wilson invaded the residence on Bradley Road in Lee County, armed with a handgun, and then kidnapped Michelle. End of quote. Wilson's autopsy revealed 
bruising, which they said indicated signs of a physical struggle. The other three victims reportedly identified him as the intruder and abductor. Finally, items which were stolen during the robbery, along with Michelle's purse, were found months later near property owned by Wilson's brother. Later, Michelle's remains were also found nearby. A lot of this is circumstantial, and one has to wonder if David Wilson had not thrown his truck into reverse, wrecked his truck, and then shot himself that night, would we have a closed case right now? David Wilson pled guilty in 1975 to second-degree murder of a bar owner who had thrown him out of the bar for causing problems. As threatened, he returned to the bar, shot, and killed the owner. He was convicted of second-degree manslaughter and sentenced to prison. Later, in 1980, Wilson escaped from prison, and when police in Michigan were on his tail, he attempted to flee and wrecked the vehicle he was driving, killing a passenger, another escapee. As the investigation into Michelle's disappearance began to wind down with no new leads coming in, Michelle's mom, Karen, was still saddened at what she characterized as a slow response from police when the incident was first reported. In June of 2006, Karen expressed frustration at that and at the rumors buzzing around about Michelle, which Karen said were not true. But, she pointed out, even if the rumors, namely that Michelle must have been a drug user and it was a drug deal gone bad, even if those rumors were true, it should make no difference. Karen said, Our point is it doesn't matter if Michelle was a heroin addict, street-walking whore. She still deserves to be looked for and found. After a slow start, however, the police did begin to work the case diligently. But could Michelle's life have been saved if police had not spent so much time questioning the other occupants of the home and searching Michelle's home? We may never know. Also, some say the police are not relying on facts by accusing David Earl Wilson. The initial description of the killer was of a white man in his 30s, but David Wilson was 49 at the time. Obviously, there is a chance the victims didn't see the person well enough to be able to determine age. Wilson's family, however, is adamant that their family member is innocent. They say he was being pulled over because his wife had reported him missing on January 1st. On January 2nd, Wilson's brother got a hold of him, and they met up on the side of a road in Harnett County. Wilson's brother later said that David seemed depressed at the time. He had mental health issues, he was suicidal, and he had a rough life, they all admit that. But, they said, they didn't believe he would have killed Michelle. Wilson's family also says that the police have not, in all these years, produced a shred of evidence that he was the perpetrator of these crimes. They believe his name is being slandered when he can no longer defend himself. Like Michelle Bullard, David Earl Wilson was also loved and is missed. The murder of Michelle Bullard has never been solved and the case is officially still open. The Disappearance of Heather Carter In the very early morning hours of Wednesday, July 12, 2017, 
Heather Carter, 28 years old, and a friend were meeting Heather's ex-husband, Jimmy Prophet III, at a gas station. We don't know why they were there to meet, but Heather and Jimmy had a long, complicated relationship, and although they were divorced, family says they were on again, off again. Immediately after Heather and her friend left their vehicle after pulling up to the gas station, Jimmy Prophet opened fire, according to reports. The friend was hit twice, but managed to get back in the car and drive away. When authorities arrived at the scene, a large quantity of Heather's blood was on the ground, and witnesses stated that Heather had been shot, as they characterized it, multiple times. Now, some people might tell you that they saw this coming, because Heather and Jimmy, although still quite young, had a long history between them, rife with violence. In 2008, Jimmy was accused of assaulting Heather, but Heather didn't show up for court, so the charges were dropped. Heather's family says they tried to convince her to leave him for good, but she always went back to him. In fact, the two were married a month after the incident. In 2009, at the expense of two innocent people's lives, the community was granted a brief reprieve from Jimmy Prophet's highly irresponsible exploits. He killed some people in a head-on collision when he was illegally passing another car. For that, he spent less than a year in prison, and then he was back out to terrorize at his leisure. And terrorize he did. He racked up convictions of breaking and entering, larceny, and possession of a firearm by a convicted felon, among other things. Also added to his resume were charges of kidnapping and assault with a deadly weapon with a minor present, to which the victim, Heather Carter, refused to testify. So again, the kidnapping and assault charges were dropped. But in 2012, Heather and Jimmy were finally divorced. Heather's dad said at a press conference that he had begged Heather to stay away from Jimmy. It's hard, though, when there are kids involved and, statistically, victims of domestic violence attempt to separate from the abuser on average seven times before success. And in the United States, about three women are murdered by their partners every day. The difference between Heather and many of these other women is that we don't know what happened to Heather because when police found her blood on the ground at the gas station that night, that's all they found. Heather had disappeared. Apparently, after not being able to get back into the car in which she'd arrived at the gas station, Heather was pulled into the green Cadillac Jimmy was driving. In the subsequent days, police were able to track down Prophet and his car. The car revealed significant evidence that Heather had been transported in it, again, because of the large amount of blood. But after being arrested, Jimmy wasn't revealing anything. Police released an image from surveillance footage of some people they believe may have been witnesses We'll post those at caseacquaint.com. So Jimmy Prophet has been charged in part with attempted murder and kidnapping. Heather's family doesn't seem to be harboring much hope that she is alive, but right now, Heather is a missing person because the last time she was seen, she was alive. Police believe someone else besides Jimmy Prophet knows what happened to Heather that night. Heather Carter was 28 years old when she disappeared, injured, on July 12th of 2017. She's 5'5", five five, 160 pounds, with red hair and brown eyes. 
She has a tattoo of a clover on her ankle, the letter J on her wrist, and the name Heather on her shoulder. If you have any information about the whereabouts of Heather Carter, you're encouraged to call the Fayetteville Police Department at 910-303-9554 or Crime Stoppers at 910-483-TIPS. The Disappearance of Meta Valentine In the immediate days leading up to her disappearance in 2014, Meta Valentine would vary her route home from work, according to her boss. Meta had just broken up with her longtime on-again, off-again boyfriend, the father of one of her children, and the breakup hadn't gone well. The boyfriend, Reginald McDowell, had previously been convicted of kidnapping Meta and a different boyfriend at the time back in 1999, 15 years prior. But mercifully, Meta and her then-boyfriend had been able to escape. For that, McDowell was sentenced to 15 years in prison, but he was released in 2011. Now, McDowell denied having anything to do with the subsequent disappearance of Meta on that night in October of 2014. But, and we will provide a link to this on our website, Meta was last seen on surveillance video at her apartment complex walking towards her apartment. It was about 5.30 in the afternoon on October 28th. She had just attended a community watch meeting at the apartment complex office. In the video, she pauses, clearly taking notice of something ahead to the left, and then, after backing up a few steps, walks forward quicker than before. After she turns a corner, police say the person who can be seen appearing from off to the left and running after her is none other than Reginald McDowell. McDowell could be seen leaving alone five hours later. We only have this one video. There are multiple ways to enter and leave that apartment complex on foot without being surveilled by cameras. So while it shows him leaving by himself, he could have carried her out and deposited her in his car without being recorded if he parked on the street. But back to earlier that night, though, Meta's mother had received a strange call from her. She was, her mom says, talking cryptically. Meta stated that she wanted to go with her mom to the doctor the next day, even when her mom said she wasn't going to the doctor. Also, Meta said the name of the son she shares with McDowell. Her mom responded, Is someone there? Yes, said Meta. And after more strange conversation, Meta hung up. Now, I don't think it's far-fetched at all to speculate that Meta was trying to send a message to her mom to call 911 because of someone related to Meta's son. Later, Meta's neighbor told reporters that McDowell often showed up at Meta's apartment knocking. He knocked at one door, then went to another door, and would knock at that door. And that night, the neighbor heard arguing. The neighbor said she kept her own door locked. Meta, who had worked at Deliverance Praise Church of Worship in Fayetteville for 18 years, did not show up for work the next day and didn't attend noon prayer. That's when her colleagues and friends at the church knew something was wrong because Meta's life was the church. She would never have missed a planned event without at least calling. Meta's fear of McDowell during the last breakup was evident to everyone who knew her. 
she expressed concern at the fact that she would see McDowell driving past her house and past the church while she was at work. She told people she was afraid of him. After her disappearance, McDowell inserted himself into the investigation when he went to her apartment complex business office and told them that Meta's mom had sent him to check on Meta, but that was a lie. After initially cooperating with police, McDowell abruptly distanced himself, and he has since moved away from the area. McDowell has not been charged, but he is considered by police to be a person of interest, and he no longer communicates with them. He's presumed innocent until proven guilty, and clearly there isn't enough evidence to charge Mr. McDowell. So Meta Valentine, officially a missing person, is 46 years old. She's African American, 5 foot tall, 160 pounds. She has brown eyes, and at the time of her disappearance, she had blonde hair. She was wearing a blue t-shirt, gray sweatpants, and flip-flops. If you have any information on this case, please contact the Fayetteville Police Department at 910-303-9554. And don't forget to go check out the surveillance video that we've posted a link to on our website, caseacquaint.com. The Murder of Calvin Lewis Blackshire Calvin Lewis Blackshire's mother created a GoFundMe page to raise funds towards a reward for information leading to the arrest of the person who brutally murdered her son by shooting him in the parking lot of a Motel 6 in Fayetteville on January 19, 2017. No witnesses came forward, so police say they have few leads in the death of the 27-year-old father of one. Blackshire's phone and shoes were stolen, and police believe he was at the motel to meet someone, but who that person was, they don't know. What they do know is that a person or people took live video streaming it on Facebook of a dying Calvin Lewis Blackshire. Calvin's family and friends were doubly devastated by that news and wanted some charges brought for that savage act. But police insisted it's not against the law to film a dying human being. Nobody helped Calvin. They just took their phones out and started taking video for Facebook. Facebook later took the video down and helped the police find who posted it. But that person or people have been cleared of wrongdoing since they claim they only came upon the injured young man and didn't witness any crimes. As for Calvin's family, his mom said on the GoFundMe page that when she thinks of Calvin's son, she's saddened because the child has been cheated out of their dad. She says, I believe that the Lord will see us through this tragedy, but what about the perpetrator who is responsible for his death? How long will they live and enjoy themselves as if nothing happened? And how many other lives will they be allowed to destroy? She said, she'll find comfort in knowing that the people or person who did this are in their rightful place, jail. So to encourage that process, there is up to $6,000 in reward money for information leading to the arrest of the person or people involved in Calvin's murder. Part of that reward is being offered by Crime Stoppers. If you have any information about the murder of Calvin Lewis Blackshire, contact the Fayetteville Police Department at 910 
The Serial Rapists of the Cumberland County Area First up, we're going to talk about someone who they are calling the Ramsey Street Rapist. Between March of 2006 and January of 2008, six reported instances of rape have gone unsolved and the authorities have branded the serial rapist responsible as the Ramsey Street Rapist. He's been linked to all of these crimes by his DNA and he's been entered into CODIS. And at this point, authorities have no more leads. They were able to connect this person to a Peeping Tom case out of Harnett County in 2004. Now, Harnett County is just north of Cumberland County, and it also hosts some I-95 exits. It sounds like he must have escalated his criminal behavior because he started breaking into people's houses to get to his victims instead of just looking at them. It's quite possible that the perpetrator was or is in the military and was transferred to another area where he may be continuing to prey upon women. That's why it's important for different agencies in different areas to cooperate. The police have released some information about the Ramsey Street Rapist, and here are some of his details. He's a white male on the taller side, anywhere from 5'9 to 6'3. He weighs between 165 and 230 pounds. Most of the time, he has facial hair like a mustache or a goatee. He has a southern accent, and they also said he smells pretty bad. He has really bad body odor, but he also smells like a mechanic, like oil. And he has musky-smelling breath. He usually wears a hoodie. Once he had on an Orange County Choppers logo, and another time his hoodie had the words Notre Dame on the front. Police use the DNA profile to create a composite, which you can find by visiting our website at caseacquaint.com. The next rapist, who doesn't have a catchy name, has been linked to 11 rapes just between 2009 and 2010, all in Cumberland County and at assorted apartment complexes after dark. Police have DNA to link every one of these rapes. He's described by victims as an African-American man in his 20s or 30s, between 5 foot 9 and 6 foot tall. He weighs between 160 and 200 pounds. While he likes to try to keep his face and head covered with do-rags and bandanas, he's been reported to have dreads and scruffy facial hair. He also smells really bad, and victims could smell beer and cigarette smoke on him. So this guy doesn't sound much like a military person, and I wondered if the police just hadn't had time or resources to have the rape kits tested in order to tie him to more cases. But then I found some information about how 300 rape kits were destroyed by the Fayetteville Police Department. These were from cases ranging from 1999 to 2008. It was discovered in 2015 that these rape kits were gone, which is unfortunately not all that uncommon for police departments to lose this evidence. And you know, it's a shame because much of that DNA could be useful now. Laws are now on the books in many states that they can't destroy rape kits anymore. Ideally, no city or county should have in their possession untested rape kits. It just shouldn't happen. Anyway, we'll place the information about all these cases on our website at caseacquaint.com. And if you have any information that may help investigators, 
please contact the Fayetteville Police Department at 910-303-9554. Finally, the rest of our business. Again, we want to thank everyone who has written in, either by messages or emails. We really appreciate your constructive feedback. This is a new podcast. We're amateurs with a passion for the content, but not so much a talent for the technical side of things. So that's going to be a process for us. And we're grateful for those of you who stick with us. And also for those of you who may come back later to give us another try someday. I am a podcast consumer myself, and I never realized how hard it is to produce quality work. It does take a lot of time and talent, two things which are not always liberally distributed to everyone. So moving on, thanks again. Please, please keep your suggestions coming in. We are implementing them. Also, again, if you have ideas for an episode, let us know. We'll be happy to look at any cases that you think would be interesting and that might be important for people to know about. So that's enough business. I want to thank you for listening to this episode, and we'll talk again soon.